Welcome to the new WellMed Radio, a service of WellMed Medical Management. Over the next half hour, WellMed Radio will educate you about the health and wellness of adults everywhere. Co-hosts Dr. Marissa Charles and veteran broadcaster and attorney Ron Aaron will share information to improve your health and well-being. Here are Ron Aaron and Dr. Marissa Charles. Well, thank you so much for joining us on WellMed Radio. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Dr. Marisa Charles. Marisa is a primary care physician, board certified in family practice, and we do this show every week for folks not only across San Antonio, but across the state of Florida and elsewhere. Delighted to have you with us. Podcasts of all of our shows are available as well, and uh, I'll try to remember to tell you how to get that. Dr. Charles, it's really good to see you. It's good to see you too, Ron. Hi. Now, how's the practice going with the uh, new world of COVID-19? You know, uh, we've had to make some changes, but overall, we're doing well, I think. You know, starting the new year, uh, we hit it with a bang, you know, getting our patients in, getting our patients seen um, and in lots of different ways. So, yeah. Well, I, I know that uh, because of what you do dealing with patients, both men and women, our topic today, female urinary incontinence, it's something I'm sure you face with a number of your patients. Absolutely. That's actually quite a common problem, especially, you know, our age group in the clinic is patients that are above 65. Mostly we do have some folks that are a little bit younger, but especially in women and especially once you've had several children, incontinence is not uncommon. Of course, there's different types. I'm sure um, we'll talk about that coming up. Well, let me introduce our guest, Dr. Samir Gary Samafard. Uh, he is a physician with USMD, Center for Advanced Pelvic Medicine and Bladder Health up in Arlington, Texas. Doctor, doctor graduated uh, as a urology specialist, and that's what he does at the USMD Center for Advanced Pelvic Medicine. He also practices medicine at the USMD Fort Worth Clearfort Clinic. He earned his medical degree from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical School in Dallas, completed his residency in urology at the Smith Institute of Urology and Northwell Health in North New Hyde Park, New York. He also completed a fellowship training in female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery at the Cleveland Clinic in Garfield Heights, Ohio, a place where I, uh, I told him I'm one of the few people who've actually been there. I grew up in Shaker Heights and we used to get all over the community. So I've been to Garfield Heights. So Samir, thank you for coming on. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to join you guys today. What, what attracted you to pelvic health, to urinary incontinence, to urology? Now, that's a fantastic question. And I get that a lot, mainly because I don't think that it's something that people go into medical school saying they want to take care of, or it comes to people's forefront in terms of something that appears exciting or in any way rewarding. But, um, you know, I chose urology as a surgical field mainly because I wanted to be able to solve problems concretely for patients. Um, and that's what we do by operating on them mostly. But urology is unique in the surgical world, mainly because a lot of our patients are also long-term patients. Um, they, they form relationships with us that are longstanding. And the reason I really appreciated and wanted to go into pelvic reconstruction and female urology particularly was that most of the patients that I help take care of are there because they want to be there and they have a problem that you know, really, really bothers their quality of life. And I feel like I have a unique skill set to be able to give that back to them. Um, and it's very rewarding to see them recover and to gain um, a very important aspect of their lives back that they didn't have before. 
you make a big difference for them. Absolutely. And that's one of the joys and the privileges of what we do. And Dr. Charles, uh, you're shaking your head yes. Um, well, you know, that's a, a very specific um you know, diagnose a very specific situation, losing your control of, you know, control of incontinence, control of your bladder at any age is difficult. So we have, you know, patients that are struggling with mobility, um, especially in their older years with arthritis and, you know, different conditions, and then they have bladder issues. So they're having to run to the restroom with their knees that don't cooperate. And that's a terrible problem to have. So I know many patients that have benefited so much from surgical intervention or, or medications. Or, and I know there's a lot of different treatments that you can do depending on um, the cause of the incontinence, right, Dr. Dr. D, I think is what we're going to go with. Yes? That's okay. Um, that yes, right? there, are, there are plenty of options. Um, I just would start by saying that there are many different types of incontinence and they're all managed differently. Um, some of them we do have a lot of behavioral, conservative, or medical therapies for, um, and some of them require surgery. But that's kind of the goal of establishing a relationship with um, my patients is trying to figure that out and tease those apart and help get them back on their feet. Because I think a lot of times, half of the battle with incontinence is both education and learning about the behavioral and day-to-day -day aspects of it that many people don't think about that actually exacerbate and make those symptoms worse. Um, and you're right, there, it's, it's a totally um, it's more complicated than it might seem on the surface, and there's a lot we can do to help. So the patient who's struggling with incontinence, a lot of embarrassment, a lot of shame, it goes with that. They don't want to talk about it. When should they go see you, and under what circumstances? Yeah, that's, that's a fabulous question. I think really the point I'll make on that regards is that, you know, this is a quality of life issue. So it's really a patient-specific issue. I'm happy to see patients who just want to talk and have very minimal bothersome incontinence and just want to know what to expect and if it's going to get worse and what we can do to help them. And then I have patients who come in who are seeing me for something else and I find out they have really big incontinence issues and they're really not bothered by it and they're okay changing their pads daily. They feel like in general, they really don't want to invest in more, um, mainly because they're either frail or they have so many other medications they're on. Um, it's not a priority for them. So for the most part, it's patient dependent. And whenever somebody is ready to have that conversation, we're here to help. If you've just joined us, you're listening to WellMed Radio. I'm Ron Aaron. Our special guest, Dr. Samir Gary Savafard. He's a physician up in Arlington, Texas, with the Center for Advanced Pelvic Medicine, part of USMD. Our co-host, Dr. Marisa Charles, is here as well. We're talking about urinary incontinence. And while uh, the topic is female, uh, Dr. Dury Severford, men struggle with that as well, do they not? They do, and that's something that is also relatively undertreated. Um, you know, men, I feel like, have a more um, better understanding that if they have urinary complaints, they go to a urologist. Um, and a lot of men are evaluated and managed for BPH or benign prostatic hyperplasia, which essentially is the source of much of men's voiding complaints as they get older. Um, but one that's, of the, the, uh, that's the prostate? Yes, that is the prostate. But one of the things that we're learning more so in the urologic field that we're studying more is that a lot of men's voiding complaints have been chalked up to their prostate. But in fact, we know there's also overlying bladder issues with that as well. And there's a, a big subset of men, about 30% of them, who are treated for prostate issues but continue to have overactive bladder symptoms that can lead to incontinence. Um, and so men don't usually have as many, much of an issue with leaking 
but they do have equally um, bothersome symptoms having to run to the bathroom and not having enough time to go to the bathroom, which are you know, part of the symptom umbrella categories that would classify that as kind of under the same thing as incontinence. And when you take a look at, uh, do you see men as well or just women? I do. I see both men and women. Okay. Well, when, when you take a look at the issue, uh, you said men are uh, more likely to go to a urologist because they, they're aware of that. Uh, overall, aren't men more reticent to go to a doctor to begin with? I would totally agree with that statement. Um, I think that um, men also are less likely to seek help and seek care. I, I just meant that I think that the lines of, you know, understanding of what to do is clear in men. There are mm -hmm. a lot of women I take care of who say, hey, I didn't even know this specialty existed or I never thought to reach out to a urologist. And at least you're right, men probably don't take the first step, but men do know that if they have problems going to the bathroom and urinating that they probably need to see a urologist. And, you know, getting that just culturally, I don't think that correlation has been made in women. Um, okay which is one of the barriers to educating them about what their needs are and how we can help them. And Dr. Charles, in your case, uh, are, are you able to treat uh, urinary incontinence or do you refer all to a urologist? Well, again, you know, there's different reasons and different types of urinary incontinence. And so, um, first of all, it's trying to determine if the incontinence is more of a of a mechanical issue where there's a, a bladder that's fallen, where there's a, a, you know, a uterus that has prolapsed or has, you know, fallen and is no longer in place causing the symptom versus um, a situation where, you know, sometimes it's medications that, you know, we're prescribing that seem to be causing more of an incontinence issue, like diuretics, for example. And in other cases, it's where the bladder is overactive. So first of all, you know, it's having that conversation and trying to tease out from what the patient is describing um, how, how we can best serve them. And sometimes um, we can counsel just on behaviors. And I think Dr. Uh, Dara Savifard was going to mention a little bit about behavioral and um, things that can be done in many cases to help those symptoms. What yeah. would those be? Yeah, um, I think that it's important to note that, you know, a lot of people don't have a concept of what is considered normal, um, you know, in terms of their voiding habits. So I always tell patients that it is normal to go to the bathroom up to eight times a day. We know that's kind of the average. And we've looked at population studies that show that it is normal to go to the bathroom once at night. And as you get older, over 65, two times a night is also normal. So, you know, sometimes patients come to the office and they're going to the bathroom a normal amount of times, yet they're really bothered by it. And they just don't realize that possibly part of this is that, you know, depending on their jobs or what they're doing, they're not allowing themselves time to go to the bathroom. Um, and unlike being 25 or 30, where you can hold it and it's not a big deal, if you're not cognizant of the fact that, gee, four hours has gone by and I haven't gone to the bathroom, well, maybe you need to start a timer and go to the bathroom. Because, you know, having an accident once a day because you're just going to the bathroom twice a day um, at age 65 is different than, you know, that situation when you're 40 years younger. Um, so that's one, that's one way. I think the other way is that a lot of patients don't have a concept of how much fluid they're drinking. And I think in our society today, it's very much pushed to drink fluids and drink your eight ounces of water and really get yourself hydrated, which is not a problem in any shape of the, you know, uh, of the concept. But if you drinking that much water or that much caffeine makes you run to the bathroom so much that you're bothered by it, well, we need to talk about reducing that fluid intake because I have a tug of war sometimes when patients say, well, I have to get my water in, but they're, they're leaking and having four pads are going through. And so I have to kind of encourage them to, you know, are you drinking because you're thirsty or are you really just drinking because somebody told you you have to drink all this water? And that's mm -hmm. another way that we need to counsel our patients and get them on the right track. 
How much water should we drink? You know, from a, everybody has their different priorities. From a priority of a urologist, right, with, that, with somebody who has normal cardiovascular status and no renal issues, um, really the recommendation is to drink to thirst. And to, that really usually translates to about 48 ounces a day. From my perspective, for somebody who has kidney stones, which is another population I help take care of, it's you, when you go to the bathroom, you want your urine to be a pale yellow color. If it's amber or if it's dark orange, you're not drinking enough. And if it's totally clear all the time, you're probably overdoing it and drinking too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they had a sign in the uh, restroom at uh, the clinic I go to uh, with the different colors of urine. Uh, and I thought that was very helpful. And they put it in the right place, right next to the bathroom. And you could <laughs> that see. That was smart. That's good. Yeah, it was very smart. And, uh, you know, I never thought about it, but uh, there is a color to urine. And as you say, pale yellow uh, would be good. Absolutely. And that's kind of a target, right? Depending on somebody's hydration status and how active they are and how warm their environment is. And, you know, us being in Texas and living in warmer climates, we're definitely going to have to drink more water, especially in the summer months than if we were living up in the Northeast, let's say. All right. Now, stay with me just a minute. We're going to come right back to you. Uh, We're talking with Dr. Samir Gary Sabafard. He's with USMD up in Arlington, Texas. Thanks for listening to WellMed Radio. You may be experiencing anxiety or stress regarding all the news about COVID-19 or what is commonly referred to as coronavirus. You are not alone. Optum is opening its emotional support helpline, providing access to specially trained mental health specialists. This is a toll-free number and it will be open 24 hours a day, seven days a week for as long as necessary. This is a free service. Anyone in need of emotional support is welcome to call. The number is 866-342-6892. That's 866-342-6892. One more time, 866-342-6892. Crying, waiting, hoping. Well, thank you so much for listening to WellMed Radio. I'm Ron Aaron with our very special guest, Dr. Samir Derisavafard. He is a a urologist with USMD and up in Arlington. And our co-host, Dr. Marisa Charles, is here as well. We've been talking about female incontinence. And I want to get back to uh, uh, Samir talking about things you can do uh, to try to control urinary incontinence uh, that are short of surgery. Sure. So I know that before we took a break, we talked about fluid management and expectations and, um, and timed voiding, which is what we talk about in the clinic. But in other things that patients aren't aware of is the amount of caffeine they're drinking. And it's not just coffee. Um, you know, it's things like tea, whether that's iced, which is a real issue in the summers. A lot of patients drink a lot of iced tea um, that's totally caffeinated or hot tea. In addition to things like sodas or artificially sweetened beverages, all of these are substances that we know irritate the bladder. Um, caffeine in particular both is irritative to the bladder as well as diuretic, which means that it makes more, it makes you make more urine. Um, and so as a result, it's a double whammy. Um, right. the more- and with a Starbucks on every corner. So. <laughs> and with not only the amount a patient is drinking, but the, what they're drinking is important because if the majority of your intake is one of these three things, your bladder is going to be upset and irritated and you're going to have to go. 
Um, I've definitely had a patient come in who drank, I think, eight or six shots of espresso in the morning, another four mm-hmm. in the afternoon, and wondered why she was going 15 times a day to the bathroom. And I had to gently right. let her know that, you know, the caffeine really has to come down. Um, and before I can make a thorough evaluation of somebody's bladder is really the culprit and not their behavior, I try to have patients cut down to one and, or one and a half cups of coffee, regular cups. We're not talking like mugs or one and a half Starbucks, Starbucks um, you know, cups. It's one and a, like 12 ounces of coffee, which is a, a regular order at a coffee shop. Um, and if that's the case, then we can talk about what we can do to help. What about alcohol? So alcohol is a great question. Alcohol is a diuretic, but alcohol is not an irritant to the bladder. So in terms of making you feel more overactive, it's you're going to make more urine when you drink alcohol. And absolutely, that's something to limit. But unlike something like a Diet Coke, um, it's not going to be as irritative. So th- once it's through your system and you've made the urine, that's good to go, but it's not going to linger as long as other things. Any correlation with, yeah, with folks that eat very spicy food? No. And that's also something that's been studied a lot. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of pathologies within urology, mainly one being interstitial cystitis or bladder pain syndrome, which is another mm-hmm. totally different topic, um, which is not incontinence related. But there are patients who have bladder pain and have a lot of irritative symptoms in their pelvic region. Spicy foods and um, things like that are acidic, like tomatoes and stuff like that, that would cause you heartburn, exacerbate those types of patients. But it's not going to make your incontinence worse. Um, and we have good data on that. That's okay. why we grew up on the border. Spicy food, right? Right, right. That's a, a very big thing. It, well, Texas, you know, I think all over, but not just Texas. You know, there's a lot of places where they really enjoy having just a lot, a lot of very spicy food. So um, that's very interesting. So um, what about, you know, um, behaviors or, or things that people can do? Like, for example, we hear a lot about those Kegel exercises. Does that really help? So Kegels are helpful for strengthening a person, the patient's pelvic floor. And that's really helpful for stress incontinence, which is leakage when um, a woman in particular stresses their abdomen in any way, shape, or form. So that's standing up, you know, from a seating position, bending over, laughing, coughing, sneezing, exercising, those types of things. Kegels are helpful and Kegels is kind of under the umbrella of just pelvic floor exercises in general. Um, It's definitely something that I think that women, they can try at home without an issue. Um, but I will say that unless you're doing it regularly and doing it in a regimented fashion and doing it correctly, it's not going to be effective. And I know plenty of women who come in who say, hey, I've been doing Kegels for 10 years and it's not working. Well, the question is, just like any regimen, how often have you been doing it? Are you even doing them properly? Because, you know, unlike bending your finger, I think when you tell somebody to squeeze something in their pelvis, mm-hmm. they may not know what they're doing. And, you know, I usually refer them to my pelvic floor physical therapy colleagues who do a much better job of making sure the patients are doing the exercises correctly and with the right repetition to get those results. Um, So I know they can do like biofeedback and, you know, where they will make sure that patients are actually squeezing the muscles they're supposed to be squeezing, which is a hard thing to teach. It is. And it's a little bit more involved than than Kegels. but um, physical therapy is a wonderful tool that we have in our tool bucket and patients who have mild to moderate incontinence, we know that if you stick with it, um, patients can see up to 30% improvement in their symptoms, which is significant given that it's just exercises without medicine or anything. Well, Dr. Darius Severford, what about uh, over-the-counter supplements and medications? I see them advertised all the time. Take this, urinary incontinence is gone. Right. Well, I'm not really familiar with any supplements or over-the-counter treatments that can really 
I can medically recommend that help with incontinence. Um, you know, we do know there are supplements and um, additional resources that can help with other voiding complaints um, with BPH, for instance, in men, which is not necessarily in female, um, in the female population. But um, I, there's nothing I can recommend that I have literature to support and say, hey, this is going to help your incontinence. Okay. Uh, what about Jerry, the cranberry? Uh, you know, so many folks uh, come in showing me cranberry supplements that they want to take. Yeah. So cranberry supplements are actually a reasonable option in patients who have recurrent urinary infection. It's an, again, another diagnosis and not really incontinence based. Um, in the realm of urinary tract infections and recurrent urinary tract infections, which I want to be clear are symptoms of urinary infections that I would classify as burning urgency frequency with a confirmed culture that suggests bacteria in their urine. Um, in those situations, there are supplements and over-the-counter medications or um, substances that, that we know help. Cranberry is one of them that has been shown to possibly be effective. Again, it's very patient-dependent. Some people feel like they get a good response with it, others don't. Um, and because it's not an FDA-regulated substance, you know, I can't recommend a formulation or a, a make of it. But um, it's in my patients over current urinary infections, it's definitely something we talk about. Now, I've heard a lot of uh, patients get Botox injections. What does that entail? Right. So, or incontinence. Yeah. So for overactive bladder, once patients have passed first and second line therapy, which first line therapy is essentially the behavior things we've talked about. Second line therapy is medications. Third line therapy uh, for overactive bladder, which again is different than stress incontinence. One of the options includes Botox, which for our audience, Botox is a medication that is a paralytic to the muscles, um, and it's used in a lot of different applications in medicine. But in urology, I inject the medication directly into the wall of the bladder with a needle in the office as an outpatient procedure. Um, and we know that that is a good option in reducing those sensations of urgency frequency, not getting to the bathroom in time. Um, and it's a procedure that kicks in about 10 days after we inject it and it lasts in the bladder for anywhere from four months to 12 months. And so patients routinely come in for biannual, um, or excuse me, semi-annual um, injections if that's the treatment route they decide to go on. How big is that needle? <laughs> Ron, we don't talk about those things. <laughs> you don't need to see, you close your eyes, you know. I'm sitting, I'm sitting here squirming. <laughs> No, but for the patients that it's effective for, it's it's a great tool. It is. And again, with incontinence, we have a number of different treatment options, this being one of them. And for patients who aren't interested in an implant and aren't interested in something that is more permanent, you know, the medication gets injected, it lasts for a certain amount of time, and then it wears off. Right. Um, it's a reasonable... Well, what would be, uh, when you mention implant, what are you implanting? There are, the other option that's kind of the the alternative to the Botox in higher order overactive bladder management is a, um, a sacral neuromodulator, or essentially it's a bladder pacemaker. Um, and ah. what that involves is um, surgically placing so that it gently sends pulsations to the bladder to calm it down. So I like to explain it as noise canceling headphones to the bladder. Um, and nice. it, lets them, it lets the bladder have a regular feedback, um, you know, be able to sense things normally and to avoid more. You broke up a little bit. You're talking yeah, about a. You broke up a little bit. You're talking about a, a lead that goes into the bladder. Oh no, it's a lead that goes into the tailbone that stimulates okay. a nerve that supplies the bladder. Ah. Ultimately, it, it works like a noise canceling headphone to remove any of those 
aberrant signals that are causing your bladder to squeeze when you don't want it to. Um, and then there's a battery that sits kind of in the fat of your buttock that supplies the energy for the pacemaker. Oh. But that's only for patients that have already tried, for example, medications and, and could not find or did not have success with those other treatments, correct? We don't, wouldn't jump straight to the implant. For a urinary incontinence patient, correct. Again, this is third-line therapy. So this is after medications have been tried, after behavioral management has been tried, um, and it's on the same tier of treatment option as the Botox. So the type of, of incontinence that generally benefits most from surgery, that's more the stress incontinence, no? Um, well, surgery is the only treatment option really in my hands at this point in time for stress incontinence. The overactive bladder, the bladder pacemaker is a surgical option. Um, the Botox is a procedural option in the office. And so um, it really depends on the level of invasiveness kind of differs between the different types of it. And if it were you, which would you prefer? Personally? Yeah. I think I think personally, I would prefer the pacemaker, mainly because it's the most durable um, treatment option that lasts the longest. But that's just me. I don't have really an issue with having an implant. I think that I've reviewed the literature and the data, and it's not something that bothers me. But I do know that that might be a concern for some of my patients. Somebody's calling you in your closet. So, Dr. Charles, we're out of time. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Gary Savifard. We really appreciate you being here. This has been WellMed Radio. Our co-host, Dr. Marisa Charles. I'm Ron Aaron. Thanks for joining us on WellMed Radio. Thank you for listening to WellMed Radio, a service of WellMed Medical Management. We welcome your emails with suggestions and comments on this program at radio at wellmed.net. And please be sure to tune in next week for another edition of WellMed Radio.